you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're just going to read verse 11, which is taken in the context of the sermon that we gave last week. I wanted to focus a little bit more on what he's saying just in this one verse. I'm just going to read it to you very briefly here. It's a continuation of a sentence. He basically says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. Why? For we are not ignorant of his designs or his devices or his schemes, his plans. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask again for your help. Uh, We know that uh, we do not handle your word properly when we come at it lightly. We pray, Father, that you would give us reverence for your holy word. Give us faith to believe it. We pray that you would help us to internalize it, help us to meditate upon it, help us to breathe it. Let it be a part of our lives. Lord, we pray that you might strengthen us for the the work ahead, protect us from the dangers around us, and help us to give you glory in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early 1960s, there was a serial killer on the loose in New England known as the Boston Strangler. And no, I'm not going to get as detailed as I did last week, so don't worry. Although many of the men enjoyed it, I'm just saying. But there was a serial killer on the loose in the 1960s known as the Boston Strangler. And he got that moniker to identify how he went about killing the majority of his victims. Now what the detectives found strange about this particular figure was the fact that there was never any sign of forced entry into any of these women's homes and their apartments. And at first they thought, well, maybe perhaps all of these women knew their assailant, at least in the beginning, because they're all sort of in a small geographical location. But the more and more killings that took place, they're like, that's impossible. There's no way that all of these women knew that same person and would let him into their apartment. But no matter how many times the police warned the women of Boston, not to open their doors to strangers, particularly to strange men. Some did it anyway, and he kept killing. Now you'd think that if, if they knew that there was a wolf outside their home who kept asking to come in, they would simply say in reply, not by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin, right? That's what we're taught to do, even as little kids. The problem is they didn't know they were dealing with a wolf. Each time the man would show up outside their apartment, outside their home, he would identify himself as a maintenance man, as a delivery man, sometimes even a detective going throughout the neighborhood trying to talk to people about the crimes that had been committed. And as expected, most of the women would show some reluctance at first to let him in. But as he began to back off away from the door, he would sort of casually threaten that there might be some consequences if he wasn't allowed to come in. For instance, he would say something like, well, you might be without electricity for a week if I don't come in and fix this alleged problem. And so, not wanting to be inconvenienced, slowly the woman would unlatch the door and would allow the killer into her home. Of course, if a man looked like a wolf, this ruse would never work, would it? (laughs) The same way if a snake slithered up to your door and began to speak to you asking permission to come into your home, most of you would immediately latch your door, call pest control, and maybe a psychiatrist as well because you're not used to snakes talking to you like that, right? 
In fact, we, we often forget the fact that when the devil chose to inhabit the snake, he did it to make the woman more comfortable. Because if he just showed up as the dark lord himself, he would have scared the mess out of her. He tried to disguise his intentions. And so he put the woman at ease in order to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, in our verse this morning, I wanted to elaborate a little bit more on this concept of the tactics that the devil uses in his ongoing war against the saints. Last week we were talking specifically about a church discipline case in the church of Corinth, how some were reluctant to forgive the man who had repented of his sins. They wanted to still hold uh, his offenses against him. And we were talking about the fact that uh, harboring unforgiveness can lead to very detrimental results. First, for the man himself, because it can lead him into greater despair and a, a sense of hopelessness, wondering if Christ would ever forgive him of his sins and he would ever be uh, admitted back into the church and to the hope of heaven. But on the other hand, it would also lead the unforgiving church members to have a proud and bitter heart that turned away from the living God. So Satan, by this one act, is killing two birds with the same stone of unforgiveness. He's that crafty. But you'll notice in our verse this morning, speaking of Satan's work here, Paul does not merely have this one instance of unforgiveness in mind, but rather he refers to the plural designs that he uses. Not just one design, not just one way of tripping us up, if you will, in terms of unforgiveness, but many, many different designs. Unforgiveness is just one of them that, that Satan uses. In fact, I'd say the devil has a pretty fat playbook that he follows pretty regularly to trip us up in our faith, depending upon our weaknesses, depending upon our particular temperaments, even, particular, even depending upon our particular stage of life. Uh, he knows how to get at us. I mean, after all, our enemy is as old as time itself. He's been around the block a few times. He knows exactly the weaknesses of human nature and even the vicissitudes of life. He knows how to get at us. It's sort of compared to, uh, I remember reading something when uh, Ellen and I were working in Yellowstone National Park, and there was something like 101 ways to die in Yellowstone National Park, right? Whether being mauled by a buffalo or falling into a, a hot spring or geyser or even being buried in an avalanche, there are a lot of ways you can die. Now, I don't know exactly the number of ways that Satan can kill the soul of a man, but I'd venture to say it's pretty high. He knows a lot of different ways to get at us. But generally, I'd say, he still follows the same patterns, especially once he knows your weakness. He goes about the same methods again and again because he knows we're suckers. We'll easily fall for it. We're not as smart as we think we are. I remember when I was in middle school, every Monday night I had to go to the bowling alley. Every Monday night because my parents were on a bowling league. That shouldn't surprise you. Our last name is Bolin. The Bolin's bowl. That's what we do. But this particular Bolin was not so excited about going to that darkened alley every Monday night that reeked of cigarette smoke and sweaty shoe rentals. Until finally they opened up an arcade in the bowling alley. This is the 80s, mind you. And all of a sudden, I loved going to the bowling alley. 
My favorite arcade game was the first one-on-one -on -one fighting game that had ever come out, 1984, Karate Champ. Anybody ever play Karate Champ? Two people, maybe. <laughs> it was the best game ever. Now, I'll be honest with you, I have no martial arts skills whatsoever. None. But somehow, I had found a way to continually win one match after another, after another, spending the whole two hours on that same machine using one quarter. This was the 80s, one quarter. How did I do it, you ask? Well, I had one signature move. I would simply feign a kick or punch to the face of my opponent. And as soon as he tried to lunge at me in return, I'd flip over him, land behind him, and then kick him in his back. I did this again and again. Tremendous success. The reason why is because back then computers weren't all that smart. I was always playing the computer, and after gaining two or three points, you'd think at some point the opponent would sort of think to himself, gee, this guy keeps flipping over my back and kicking me in the face. I should do something different. But did that happen? No. So I'd do it again and again and again, and I'd get up to you know, a pretty high level, and two hours would be almost done. It wasn't so bad. Until finally I got to some other figure who flipped just as much as I did. And when he saw me to begin flipping, he just immediately kicked me in the face before I could get over him. Because he knew that's what I was going to do. I mean, I don't know how he knew it, but none of the other guys could figure it out. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. I, I would outwit them again and again and again using the same move. Of course, that's the problem. With fools and unbelievers... They are ignorant of Satan's moves. They don't know what he's going to do. We see the example of Proverbs chapter 7. Lady Wisdom is telling the story of a simple young man who's lacking sense. He's on his way home, and he passes down the street near the house of a loose woman. And as he's walking by the house, the woman, the woman suddenly seizes him and kisses him and says to him this, Come, let us take our fill of love till morning for my husband is not home, and he won't be for quite some time. And with seductive speech and smooth talk, she compels him all at once. He follows her as an ox is led to the slaughter, not knowing that this sin will cost him his life. Right? It's precisely because of his ignorance. He's simple-minded that he's subject to her flattery and her manipulation in contrast to the wise and prudent man who sees danger coming, he hides himself from it, walks right past, and in fact goes a different road so he doesn't have to pass that woman's house. But not the simple man. He continues to walk by her house day by day and suffers for it. Now, by nature, the unbeliever is ignorant of the ways of the devil, easily deceived, easily abused by him in a wide variety of ways. The Apostle Peter describes the life of the unbeliever in this way. As one caught up in the passions of his own ignorance. As one who's been captured by the devil to do his will and doesn't even know it. Certainly it's, it's, it's the description of a fool, but it's also a description of an unbeliever. He just doesn't know. He doesn't know any better. He goes along with whatever the devil's whispering in his ear because he doesn't know the devil's whispering in his ear. He does whatever the world demands because he finds that he approves of it as well. He doesn't know why or how, 
but generally his mindset is very similar to whatever the popular spirit of the age is. Whatever the culture wants, that's what he wants because he wants to fit in. Doesn't know that the devil's behind this. The way the Apostle Paul describes the life of the unbeliever in 1 Corinthians 15, 34 is as one who is continually in a drunken stupor. He has no knowledge of God and therefore runs headlong into sin. Doesn't know any better. Now, whatever the devil's role is in this, though, the unbeliever's unaware of it. And therefore, you'll notice that even at the cross, when the crowd turns against Christ, even while he's dying on the cross, you remember he prays for the unbelievers. And he says what? Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant. They don't see how Satan is at work in this, working through the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, to get them to turn against him. You know, Was this the same crowd that was cheering him on just hours before? Could be. Don't know for sure. But they quickly changed their mind if that's the case. How far were they willing to go, unaware that Satan was involved in all this? And that's how it was for all of us prior to coming to faith in Christ. We all had that same mentality. We were unaware of the spiritual warfare going on around us. We were ignorant of Satan's moves, even though he uses the same ones again and again. But now the Lord says to us as believers, wake up. Wise up. Stand up to the schemes of the devil. Right? Now, if we were to consider the big picture, what is Satan trying to accomplish? What's his goal here? Well, in, in, in regards to the unbeliever, his goal is laid out for us in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. His, his goal is to blind the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of Christ. So he blinds them even to his own presence, of his own work and what he's doing, so that he won't be aware of what Christ has done. That's number one. But then secondly, in regarding believers, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will also be led astray from what? A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He already knows that you've had this light. You've already been awakened to it, but now he wants to remove you from that fellowship to take you away, to turn you away from that sincere and pure devotion to Christ. If you think about it this way, the scripture tells us that eternal life is to know and to love Jesus. So Satan's goal is to get you to not know him as much anymore, not love him. In fact, not have him in your thoughts at all. To think about anything but Christ. Anything but Christ's will. But you think, would any person really do something like that? I mean, you know, would would someone hate someone that much to do something like that? I just I just read yesterday, I think it was, um, there's a baseball game. Maybe you guys saw the clip of this. An umpire had called a strike when it should have been a ball. And uh, the player got really upset and started yelling at the umpire. So the very next pitch was a ball that was like two feet away from the plate, and the umpire called it a strike anyway. And immediately the whole team's going irate, right? But you're thinking, Who, what umpire would do this? But he did it out of revenge. And uh, apparently the umpire is no longer allowed to be an umpire ever again. Because everybody on it was recorded, everybody could see that. I mean, he was nowhere near the plate, but did it just despite him. We see Satan. All of the work that he does is despite his Maker, despite the Son of God. But how does he do that? 
well, well, contrary to what you may have seen in horror films and how they try to describe demonic activity, the devil never reveals himself physically to you. If he did that, that sort of contradicts his whole MO, right? If he reveals how scary he really is and goes around scaring everybody with demons, they would actually probably wake up to it and say, I don't want anything to do with that person, right? That's not what he does. In fact, if you think about it, uh, the, the, the clearest example we have of Satan attacking a someone in Scripture is in the account of Job, right? Does Satan ever reveal himself to Job? No. Job has no idea what's going on. He has no idea of the wager that's made between him and God over his righteousness. Instead, what does Satan do? He uses the weather against him. He brings sickness upon him. And then he uses his evil counsel to try to get him to turn away from God. That's, that's, his, that's what he's doing. In fact, every single aspect that he uses is for a greater purpose. So if you think about all of the death that Job experienced, all of his children dying, all of his animals being slaughtered, and then even all of the physical uh, pain and affliction that he experienced himself, that was all for a, a greater purpose. So in other words, the trials themselves were not the evil. They were a lesser evil that would lead to a greater evil. What was Satan's intention? What did he want to do? He wanted to get Job to curse God to his face. That's what he says in chapter 1 of Job. How does he do that? Well, after he goes through all these afflictions, Satan never reveals himself to Job. Instead, he speaks through his wife to coax him to say those exact same words. Because after he's gone through all this pain, his wife's looking at this. She says to him, Job, why are you still holding on to your integrity? Just curse God to his face and what? Die. It doesn't work, though. Job doesn't listen to her. So what does Satan do then? He sends three of Job's best friends to come and give him really good counsel. And what is their counsel the whole time? Obviously, you're a really bad person. You deserve everything you're going to get, right? And when that doesn't continue to work, they keep prodding him and poking him and provoking him to eventually he challenges God's authority over him. He begins to question God's providence and to to accuse him of evil in some way or another. In fact, we know this, chapter 4, verse 2 of Job. God says, how dare you to contend with the Lord Almighty to condemn him in order to justify yourself. Job did, in fact, sin in the end. The devil worked, not just through his wife, but through his friends to get him to the point where now he's antagonist to God himself. And as a result, thankfully, Job immediately comes under repentance. It says he despises himself and repents of his sin and puts his hand over his mouth. How little did I know? How little do I know? Certainly he didn't know that the devil was involved in this at all. But Satan was seeking to instill his own thoughts into Job even through other people. It's amazing as good of a counsel as we can give, we can also give pretty evil counsel to others as well, not knowing that we ourselves are speaking the words of Satan. In fact, it's interesting, the word design, he says he uses many designs. The word that, that's used here in the Greek signifies the devil's counsels. In other words, the, the very thoughts of his own mind, he's seeking to somehow put into our minds. Think of it this way, the devil is sometimes related or at least 
uh, represented as the Antichrist, right? If there's the mind of Christ, there's the anti-mind of Christ. His goal is to instill that mindset within us. Instead of the Word of God bringing life, we have the devil's Word bringing death and destruction in so many different ways. So you have to forget the expression you learned as a child. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words can never hurt me. That's an absolute lie. Absolute lie. Think of it this way. When Satan entered the Garden of Eden, did he use sticks and stones against Adam and Eve? What did he use? He used words. Did he hurt them? Yes. They were kicked out of paradise, subjected to all the miseries of this life and even hell forever if they didn't turn by faith in Christ because of his words, not his actions. Again, Satan didn't come to them physically hurting them in any way. He just used words. It's the same way today. Satan is not going to come at you. Again, whatever you might have seen on TV, Satan is not going to torture your flesh and keep you up at all nights of the hour to scare the hell out of you. He's going to work through your mind. That's his MO. He wants to instill within you his mindset to counter the mindset of Christ. And when he does that, he easily hardens your heart against God blinds your mind to the truth of God. Literally, it says he wages war against the law of our minds so that we can't think clearly. He confuses us with his counsels so that we would have a depraved mind, a sensuous mind, a mind full of futility and defilement. These are words that are used throughout Scripture. Every time it speaks of this warfare that's going on, instead of having the mind of Christ... We have something ugly, something horrible. So later on in this same epistle, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Paul says this, We destroy arguments, and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, why does he call this to this type of belligerent argumentation? Because Satan is constantly trying to get us to argue with God. That's his goal, you see. Again, he's, he's not trying to scare us to death. He's just trying to get us to think like him, that we would hate God as much as he does. And he does that so deceitfully. He does it by raising his lofty opinions within us to think that somehow we know better than God. To counter the truth of God's word with some other word that challenges that word. Go back to the Garden of Eden. What is the devil constantly saying? Well, God said this, but here's the truth. It's not like what God said. He's lying to you. The problem is if we don't take those thoughts captive, if we don't destroy those arguments, they quickly destroy us. Even if we just entertain them just a little bit, they begin to eat at our souls. Of course, when we're walking in the Spirit and we're full of the, the mind of Christ, we recognize what Satan is doing. He easily, easily can put it away and say, Satan, be gone, as Jesus does, right? But when we're not walking with God, it's very easy for Satan to get a hold of our hearts and our minds. It happens very slow at first. Sometimes you just begin to doubt God's word just on something small. 
then you begin to grumble at God's providence in your life, then eventually to despise his sovereign rights over you as a creature at all. Rejecting your maker, rejecting your creator, rejecting the redeemer. Again, he never engages us in open warfare. He never comes out and just attacks us in that way. Rather, you could say it's in this way, he sends in his spies, if you will, into our camp. Pretends like they're one of us. Just thoughts that are our thoughts. And, but the whole time, those thoughts are grumbling against our leader and our Lord and saying, mutiny. Don't follow this guy. He doesn't know what he's doing. Mutiny. To lead us away from our pure devotion to Christ. Remember, just as, as the devil put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, that's what he seeks to do with us. He seeks to put these thoughts into our minds and our hearts to betray Christ. John eight forty four, Jesus tells the unbelieving Jews, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Right? What, what is the will of, of God for the Christian that we would do his will? Right? Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And yet Satan is seeking to instill his will, his desires into us. Even in the pursuit of religion, it's not hard to all of a sudden lose sight of what God's will is and start forming some other will instead. But it's not just unbelievers that fall to that. Think of it, even Jesus' disciples uh, were tested and tried by this in numerous occasions. Peter was sifted by the devil, if you remember. In fact, just after confessing the name of Christ, right, that Matthew 16, highlight of the gospel, Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Peter comes out and says, you are the Christ. You're the Savior. You're the Lord. And then one moment later, Jesus is telling him he's going to the cross and he's going to die and be resurrected. And Peter says what? No. It ain't going to happen. We're not going to go in that way. We're going to go in a different way altogether. You don't know what you're talking about. He rebukes Jesus. Rebukes the one he just proclaimed to be the Christ. It has to be the quickest I have ever seen a person confess the name of Christ publicly and then immediately start talking the words of the devil. That quickly. Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're a stumbling block to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. Literally, in this case, the things of Satan. It's a different mindset altogether. You're like, well, what's so bad about Peter wanting to save Jesus' life? I mean, that's pretty loving, isn't it? Well, the problem is God wanted to crush his son. And yet Peter's saying, no, God's wrong. I want to save the son. I want to save myself. I don't want to follow some guy who's going to be killed on a cross. I don't want to be subjected to that same type of persecution. And so literally, Jesus says to him, get behind me. Because the problem is Peter thinks that he's leading Christ. That somehow God is going to follow his will, his plan. He said, get behind me. I'm not your follower. You're supposed to be a follower of Christ. Totally different. 
But again, that's exactly what the devil, the devil refuses to follow Christ. He wants to lead, refuses to humble himself. And that's, that's the mindset. You have to see the devil's hand in that argument. Of course, Peter doesn't know that until Jesus reveals it to him. Get behind me, Satan. How many times have we ourselves challenged God's will in our lives? Basically told the Lord to his face, you don't know what you're doing. You're flat out wrong. This isn't the way to go. How dare you? Why would you let these horrible, evil things happen to me? Many people have rejected the faith altogether having that exact mindset. But if you think about it, even going back to the Garden of Eden, what is the substance of that argument? That I think somehow I'm like God. That I can think for myself the difference between good and evil. I can define those words for myself, and obviously God is the one who's at fault here. God's the one who's in the wrong. I'm the one who's in the right. One of my favorite Puritan books, Lee, is this one in the library? Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices? It is. He believes it is. If you haven't read it, go read Pilgrim's Progress first. But after reading Pilgrim's Progress, go read Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. One of my favorite Puritan books. The whole book is based upon this one verse that we're looking at this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. It's a study of several devices that Satan uses to deceive us, to entangle us, to undo us in our faith, and then he provides precious remedies to counter those arguments, those methods, those moves of Satan. For example, the very, the very first device that uh, Brooks mentions is how Satan presents the bait yet hides the hook. Another way of saying it, he says, how he presents the golden cup and hides the poison. How often the devil presents to us a particular sin as something sweet, as something pleasurable, and even something profitable, and yet hides from us the very fact that it will only lead to our misery and only leads to death and destruction. He hides that from us, deceives us in that way, he promises paradise, but instead gives us perdition, condemnation. Then he turns against us, immediately begins to accuse us of how stupid and foolish and sinful and guilty and wicked that we are and that God should have nothing to do with us. Another device that Brooks mentions is how Satan seeks to excuse and lessen the severity of our sin. Ah, says Satan, it's only a little worldliness. It's only a little bit of drinking, a little lust, a little gossip. You can commit these things. It's no big danger to your soul. It's so little. It's so small. And then he gets us to treat all of our sins as if they're peccadilloes rather than provoking transgressions against God's holy law. How many times have we done this? minimized our sin and felt comfortable doing it. What about this device? How Satan seeks to present God to our soul as merely a God of mercy and love. 
How many times have you heard that in our culture today? God is love, love wins. You don't really have to worry about your sins so much. After all, God forgives us no matter what we do because he's so forgiving, he's so loving, he's so merciful. Just go ahead and do it. Of course, in the moment, Satan does not want us to think about Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Does anybody have that one memorized? Romans 2, verse 4. Paul says, he warns us, in fact, do not presume upon the riches of God's kindness and his forbearance and his patience, understanding that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, not to sin. He says, you presume upon his mercy. You presume upon his kindness, and then you trample the blood of Christ. Do not presume. The whole purpose of him revealing his mercy to you is that once you have sinned, to know that God's grace is greater than our sin. But if you do it the other way around, you're like, well, God is going to be merciful, so I might as well sin. He said, no, you've misunderstood the whole point of repentance. You've misunderstood the whole point of the gospel. Do not presume upon God's kindness and treat it as if it's worthless. Devaluing the cross of Christ. There are a number of other devices that he mentions in his book. i just share one more with you this morning. I, I shared this same one yesterday during the memorial service. How Satan often causes the saints to compare themselves and their ways with those that are deemed more wicked than themselves. <laughs> They're worse than I am. Remember the Pharisee blessing himself as he saw the tax collector on the other side of the, t- the synagogue. At least I'm not like him. I'm better than him. I was saying to the congregation yesterday, <laughs> God does not grade us on a bell curve. He doesn't somehow boost up our righteousness because someone else seems worse than us. As if it's a comparison game between us and our fellow sinners. That's not how he judges us. Rather, he judges us according to his perfect holy law. That's the standard that he uses. The law that's based upon his own character. Nothing like us. Therefore, if anyone comes and tries to compare himself to someone else, he should never feel comfortable in his sin. Because the law of God will point it out to him anyway. Don't care what the other sinner's doing. This is between you and God. Repent of your sins. Why? Because the Holy Spirit hates your sin. The Holy Spirit grieves over your sin. The Holy Spirit makes war upon your sin every single day, battling against your flesh, seeking to put to death the evil deeds of the body. And yet you're like, oh, I'm comfortable with it. Really? No. Just a few of Satan's devices, just the tip of the iceberg, if you will. There are many more. Brooks covers many of them in his book, but I guarantee you he's only touching the tip. There's so much more. How do we combat these things? Again, Brooks will give you a few uh, remedies for each one of the devices, well worth reading. Uh, But I would sort of summarize that and much more just saying, how do we destroy Satan's arguments? It always comes down to the same things. Sometimes we refer to them as the means of grace. It comes down to the word. The sacraments, the fellowship of the church, prayer, these, these types of things, it just makes sense. As you know, when the Spirit 
led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil every single time Satan attacked him. How does Jesus respond? It's written. And what is he quoting? He quotes the book of Deuteronomy three times. How many, how many passages in Deuteronomy have you memorized? He's quoting Deuteronomy because he loves the law of God so much. He's ready. Whenever Satan attacks, he's ready. Satan says, here's my word to you. Jesus says, here's the whole counsel of God's word. I don't care what your word says. Get lost. Right? What, what, what are we just saying in the, the hymn? One little word shall fail him. But you have to know God's little words. You have to know the Christ of the word. Romans 12, verse 2, in order not to be conformed to the patterns of this world and the schemes of the devil, what do we have to do? We have to be transformed by what? The renewing of our minds. How do you renew your mind? Reading God's word. Meditating upon God's word. Memorizing God's word. Uh, most of you are familiar with Ligonier Ministries. Remember R.C. Sproul's program? What was it called? Renewing your mind. He wasn't just trying to give you cool tidbits and information about Reformed theology. He was trying to prepare you for the attacks of the devil. How do you do that? By renewing your mind. But it's not just, of course, the reliance upon the Word of God, but also prayer. You remember it was only after 40 days of fasting and praying that finally Satan came up and began to hassle him. Jesus was ready for his attacks. He had been praying. Many of you are familiar with Philippians 4, 6, and 7. We've got a lot of anxious people in the congregation. In every congregation. There we're told not to be anxious about anything. Why? But by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, we're to present our request unto God. And what? The peace of God transcends all understanding. We'll do what? Guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Guard it from what? What do you think it's being guarded from? <laughs> the thoughts of Satan. Because what happens is, why are we afflicted? Why are we anxious in the midst of our afflictions? Because those are the moments that Satan uses to get us to challenge God. Think about every suffering you've ever experienced, every bad thing you've ever gone through. Those are the moments that Satan comes back all of a sudden. <laughs> for a more opportune time to say, you're right, God is awful. You don't have to experience this. You deserve better than this. How could God do this to you? He says, but by praying in the midst of your affliction, God can give you a peace to, to rest in the fact that this is God's will. I don't know why. I may not like it, but my mind is guarded from the attacks of Satan. Finally, the, the fellowship of the church, along with the sacraments that are given there, is a, it's a safety net for God's people against Satan's attacks. I was talking with a few guys the other day. Uh, a question came up. Of a, could you find a single example in Scripture of a righteous or godly man who was not in any way attached to the church? Of course, the answer should be no. There's no such thing, right? But I was racking my brain and racking my brain, and I was thinking, oh, I forgot about that passage in Second Peter that refers to Lot as a righteous man. And I was thinking, Lot moved to Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm pretty sure there were no churches in Sodom and Gomorrah at the time. 
right? In fact, if you remember, he was with the church in the Old Testament when he was in fellowship with Abraham and the family of God, but he purposely moved away from them. And at first, he was just tenting on the outskirts of Sodom and Gomorrah, but then somehow he got a house in Sodom and Gomorrah, and then he's one of the leaders in Sodom and Gomorrah, sitting in the city gates as one of the judges in Sodom and Gomorrah. He went from someone who was a part of the people of God, a part of the church, and now he's fully entrenched in the world. And it went so well for him. That was a joke. Do you remember what happened to his family, his poor family? His women, his daughters are almost raped and beaten, abused in every possible way. His wife is turned into what? A pillar of salt? That sounds good. And then his grandsons come about in a really strange way through incest as he's drunken and his daughters have their way with him. Would you recommend not being a part of the church of God for a believer? How quickly his mindset changed. He was righteous, it says, more than likely in heaven this day, and yet he had cut himself off from the church in so many different ways, and he suffered tremendously for it. His family suffered tremendously for it. And I can't say this so many times, but I've seen this again and again and again. People have somehow attached themselves to the church for a period of time, and then they walk away. They stop going to church, and then they wonder why all these bad things start happening. Now, that doesn't mean that if you go to church, nothing bad ever happens to you, but I'd say, you walk away from the church, what's going to happen? Any spiritual mindset that you have is going to be lost. It's it's, it's going to go bye-bye. You need the fellowship of the church. You need to be in God's Word. You need to be in prayer. Not because all of a sudden some demon's going to attack your flesh, but because he's going to work on your mind, your heart. And it grows so hard so quickly. Your mind gets so blinded so quickly. You have to be on your guard. I, one of the most unique experiences, I, I'm, I'm, I, it is the most unique experience I've ever experienced in my life. Uh, my wife and I had the privilege, with, we were with some really extremely wealthy guy uh, in Indonesia who, who gave us the opportunity to go to the island of Komodo, where the Komodo dragons live. It's not like here in America where perhaps you've seen one behind a glass wall in a cage. No, that's not how it is on Komodo Island. You're uh, you're walking in between them. They're all around you. And some of them are hiding. (laughs) And, um, you know, we were told by a couple of, uh, of the workers there that one of the workers was, you know, killed by one just a year before. He came out of his office, and uh, there was one just outside of his door and bit him and, and then got him, and that was it for him. You know, Thankfully, they feed them every day. <laughs> they, they literally drop this huge bundle of meat, and you just see them jumping at it. It's crazy. But you go out, and you would never want to go out on this island by yourself because you're going to get eaten. That, that's pretty much it. So 
You wouldn't want to do that. So instead, they always send one guy with you, just one guy, and he's much shorter than me. It didn't really make any sense whatsoever. And all he's got is this long stick with sort of a prong at the end of it. And anytime one would come anywhere close to you, he'd just sort of stick it on his neck and push him away from you, right? That's all it took. Apparently, that was enough to psych him out, I guess, in that regard. Um, but I would never go out there without someone who knew what they were doing. Never. It's some pretty scary creatures. But think of it this way. Uh, you know, if, if all of the world is sort of in a fallen wasteland, which it is, and uh, you were sort of in a jungle, if you were, and you knew there were snakes all around, wouldn't you rather go out with the snake crusher than go out by yourself? I mean, wouldn't you want someone with you that you knew could handle them? The most important aspect of any spiritual warfare tactic you'll ever have is not going to be, well, just, just pray more, just read your Bible more. You have to know Christ. You know Christ. You have a Christ mindset. You have his protection. You have his guidance. You have his constant presence with you. You're safe, you know? And even if you trip up and you fall and, Snake's about to get you. Christ is going to help you in the midst of that, right? You, you have to know that Christ is, is with you. But if you're not reading God's Word, you're not praying, you're not a part of the church, you're not going to know that. You're going to forget that. And then Satan will get the best of you. So I encourage you, you know, once again, as you understand the gospel of Christ, Satan cannot rip you out of Christ's hands. It can't happen. Um, but he certainly can cause you a lot of misery in the meantime and uh, lead to a lot of destruction in your life. Don't let him have it. He's got the same moves. You're not ignorant of them. Make sure you're ready. And uh, I promise you, if you are, uh, Satan can only do so much. Then you can just say, get lost. <laughs> it's over. Battle's been won. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us uh, we know that there is a, a, a spiritual war that is going on all around us, and we know that uh, we are not strong. We're not so wise as we think we are. We are very much subject to this type of uh, torture, if you will, by the devil, spiritually speaking. Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember whose we are, remember what tools we have at our disposal, and the spiritual armor of God that you've given to us that we would put on that helmet of salvation take up the shield of faith and, and all those other um, parts of the, the spiritual armor that you've given to us. Lord, help us to walk by faith, looking to Christ as our Savior, as the serpent crusher. Help us to have the mind of Christ that we might continue to enjoy that sweet fellowship and that pure devotion to him. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.